Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. So we are in episode 13 of our Bible study, which is a life-changing connection. And in this study, we are looking at various scripture verses to figure out what our church should do, kind of launching out of the pandemic and into launching to our community in November. And this is going to give us, uh, I don't know how many, because I don't know when, I don't know when we're going to be able to um, get back together without any restrictions at all. Some have said the summer, some have said the fall, but we are praying and hoping that by November 7th, pretty much all restrictions have been lifted and we'll be able to bring in our community to see our campus, to experience uh, worship with us, experience our programs with us and launch all the things necessary. Now it's going to require a lot of people. Um, It's gonna require a lot of people. If you just think about how a church operates on Sunday, and especially if you have a lot of visitors coming in, You want to make sure that each visitor is uh, welcomed, that they're shown where to go and what to do, you know, offered a cup of coffee and a donut and all the different donuts. (laughs) I don't know if we'll have donuts, offered a cup of coffee and something, you know, just to, just to, um, and that there's a friendly voice and a friendly face at every step of the way and that uh, they know exactly what it means to, you know, be associated with our congregation. How do they get involved in doing things with us and all the stuff that's necessary? How do they get, uh, you know, how are their children taught? How are they taught? How How is the household taught? And all of those things. You just think about the number of people it will take. And my guess is it will take probably every single one of us at some level to make sure that we've polished all the programs that we've kind of itemized all the volunteer opportunities, that we've trained the volunteers, we've even had some trial runs of the volunteers, that, we're, um, that we've got some incredibly strong leaders for the volunteers. All of these different things, I think, um, are going to be necessary when we launch in November. So it's not going to be just a turn on the switch and it's ready type of thing. It's going to be coming out of this 40-day journey, okay, what has Christ called us to do What are the programs that are most effective? What does worship look like that's most effective? What do midweek activities look like that are effective? How do we launch small groups if we're gonna go into that area? How do we launch biblical training in the home if we're gonna do that? I mean, all this stuff we've got to kind of contemplate and think about and then train and produce the materials and practice so that when we get there in November, it's like, wow, this church really has some great things going for it. So that's... That's what I'm looking for. Um, And so today I want to pick up what we left off at just a few few minutes ago, actually. But it's going to be, this will be posted on Tuesday. So this is actually yesterday. But we, we talked about how the early church gathered. Jesus called about him 12 disciples. He taught them for three years and then he left them. And then if you'll remember, um, Peter, who was the number one disciple, then uh, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, tongues of fire leapt on their head, and Peter preached a sermon. And at the end of the sermon, this is where we get kind of how the early church operated. And I actually want to pick up an earlier verse. Most people start at verse 42, but I want to start at verse 41. 
Because after Peter preached his sermon, those who accepted his message, this is Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. So I get this picture that it's a bit different than the way Jesus did it. Jesus had 12 people, created the apostles, boom. But then we have Pentecost and 3,000 people are baptized that day. 3,000 were added to their number that day. Just think about that. That First of all, it's a lot of baptisms. So the baptisms had to happen, you know, there had to be more than just one person baptizing. And probably the disciples and maybe even some disciples' disciples or something like that. I don't know. But they were talking about a lot of baptisms. And there wasn't a whole lot of instruction. And we're going to get into that. We're going to have a section on baptism later on in this series. But you'll notice that there wasn't any instruction. They just baptized. Why? Because baptism is your entrance into the kingdom of God. It's when the Holy Spirit you know, already comes upon you on Pentecost. Peter preaches. Now we're baptizing. You've got everything you need um, to move forward as a child of the king. 3,000 of them. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to assign 12 to one disciple and 12 to another disciple and 12 to another disciple. That's only 144 people. How do you, how do you grow 3,000 people in the faith I mean, you have to create organization and structure. You just have to. It can't be done the way that Jesus did it, not with 3,000 people. So what happened was they met together. Uh, they met together in the temple courts. They met in people's homes. They met, they lived life together. I mean, they created this community. It's like really the first megachurch. If a megachurch is 1,000 people or more, this is the first megachurch in Acts. It's Acts 2, 41, right? 3,000 people baptized that day. They had to create organization. They had to create structure. They had to figure out how are we going to teach people the way of Jesus. We have this incredible document from the first century. It's called the Didache or the teaching of the apostles. And this was like the first catechism of the church. We actually went through this over the summer. So if you've not seen or listen to the podcast on the Didache, I highly uh, encourage you to listen to the Didache because it really is the first catechism and said these are the important things that we need to teach to people so that they can understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, it's like a driver's license, right? When you get your first driver's license and you start driving a car, you are not very good at driving the car yet. You, you still have to drive hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of miles before you really, really are a good driver. And the same thing is true with following Jesus. You can f- learn the lessons of Jesus in the teachings of this early church catechism, the Didache, or by living life together with other Christians. But it takes a long time to mold and to shape to have God to have you the person he wants to be. So that's basically how the early church did it. They lived life together. They created, they had to create some sort of organization. It says they gathered for the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Um, And then they also, uh, you know, pooled their resources to serve the community around them. So this is what a church of the first century would have looked like. 
They'd have gathered together for apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, pooling their resources to love the world around them. It's kind of why our churches exist today. I mean, really, at its fundamental, a church may do a lot of different things, and that's a great thing, but at its root, a church is gathered together to create disciples, to have teaching at some level, to have fellowship, right? A church that uh, that is healthy gets together and that fellow, if it's a small, small church of 35 or less, you can do that fellowship on Sunday morning. But if it's a larger church, you have to create opportunities for fellowship because it's in that fellowship that we learn how to grow as a Christian by observing other people and by living our life and, and, and just having that joy and that fellowship together. Breaking of bread, we'll get into this also, but early church communion was different than what we do in our congregations today. And we're going to talk about that and say, is there some of that practice that we might want to incorporate into our congregation? And then prayer. Prayer is crucial to a church because prayer is God's living in us. We, we, we communicate to God our needs and he communicates to us his love and his joy and his peace and his compassion. All this stuff happens through prayer and we'll have a little section on prayer also. And then pooling together our resources. Obviously, the early church felt that Jesus was coming very, very soon because uh, Maranatha was the call of the early church. Maranatha, Lord, come soon. And um, they, they believed that Jesus was going to come back probably in their lifetime. So they didn't really, it, what, what, good was, what good was having uh, goods, what good were having things if Jesus is going to come back? So let's give it out. Let's give it out to the community. Let's love the world around us. Let's be the church that Jesus did. I mean, Jesus had no money, right? Jesus walked around, had very, very little goods on him. So you can be a follower of Jesus Christ without anything. Of course, then Jesus didn't come back in the first, in the second, and third century. And so uh, in the Didache, we realized that just giving money shouldn't just be giving out, given out willy-nilly because people can abuse that system. And so the, the term in the Didache is that let that palm sweat in your hand before you know who to give it to and how to give it and that sort of thing. Because the church has to be very keen on the fact that the that Satan is roaring around like a, a roaring lion, prowling around like a lorn, lor, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may destroy. And so Satan is using the love and the compassion and the generosity of the church to destroy the church. So you have to be careful with that too. You have to be aware that there are bad actors out there. There are people that are truly in need and there are people that are not in need at all. They're just being bad actors. And so the church had to figure that out too. And they continue to grow. I mean, the Lord says, the, the, the scripture says in Acts 2 that the Lord added to their number every day. And they did. They grew to the largest force in the world the, the, of today, two billion people who follow Jesus Christ. So it's not a small number of people who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So uh, how, did, how did this happen in the early church? Because if, we're, if it seems like we're losing ground today in Western culture, which we have for the last hundred years, then what is it that we need to change or modify? Like, and that's why, really why I'm looking at the early church, because I think they were in a similar situation to, do, to, to us today. They were the outsiders. They were kind of looked at with a skeptical eye by the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, they weren't even an official religion until you know, 325 AD with the Edict of Milan. Um, or maybe, well, whenever it was, but somewhere in there, they, they weren't even the officially recognized as, an, as a, 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 
a religion that was allowed to be around. So if you wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ for the first 300 years, you had to do it in secret. Um, so that that's more like um, that's more like uh, uh, you know gathering together people and learning the teachings of Jesus, you know, in a small group and, and that sort of thing. Now they weren't in the early church in Acts two. They didn't even know. I mean, they weren't even on the radar screen of the Roman Empire. So they were allowed to grow exponentially because they weren't on the radar screen. But once they became on the radar screen, right? Um, Nero pretty much blamed the Christians for the fires of Rome because they were the outsiders. And then for a long time, they were persecuted and killed and martyred and that sort of thing because Nero, you know, shifted the blame of his lack of leadership to the Christians. And so the whole Roman Empire turned upon the Christians and they really had to meet in secret, but they continued to grow. They continued to grow. There are a lot of people in our culture today that say that the Christian church is the root of a lot of the problems in the world today because of our teachings, right? And um, so we might need to, we might need to kind of go in the background and just do discipleship in the background at some level um, to continue to grow and not get on the radar screen. Although I think we are on the radar screen of a lot of organizations that are out there to try to destroy the church. Um, so then you have the Apostle Paul. Paul was different. Paul went into the Roman Empire. Now, at this point, Paul was going into places that, you know, not on the radar screen, creating churches. And so he was just going out willy-nilly. Paul's leadership and Paul's, um, the way Paul grew the faith was he would go into a place like Ephesus in Asia, right? He would go over there. He would preach. He would gather people together. If they were allowed to use the synagogue, he might go into the synagogue because Paul was a you know, a good Jew, he says so. He was a Jew of Jews, as a matter of fact, so he would have easily had the street creds to go into a synagogue. But once he gets into the synagogue, he starts talking about how Jesus is the promised Messiah. People either agreed with that message and said, yeah, that's great, and they followed Paul in the synagogue, or they kicked him out of the synagogue, and then Paul had to go to different places to try to spread the good news of Jesus. And so that's how Paul did it. He went out, he went into a community, he started preaching and teaching. He gathered together a group of people. Uh, they, he leveraged their gifts about how they could use those gifts to, to grow the church because Paul was very organized. Paul was a, I don't know what he was, but he was a very, very, very organized person on the scale of organization. And he would, he would create a church in that community. Uh, and then he would leave. And then if he heard that the church was having problems, that he was pastoral, by writing pastoral letters to those churches and saying, this is the problem you're dealing with, here's the solution. And a lot of times it was even more than one problem. Here's the solutions to what you're dealing with. Paul, even though he planted the church and was no longer there until the day he died, he was pastoral to those churches. That's how we did it. And then those churches grew, and then they grew, and they grew. Of course, took over the whole entire Roman Empire. And then got into bed with the Roman Empire. And that was probably not helpful at some levels. At some levels, it is because um, you you know you gain more strength, uh, you have more opportunity to preach the good news. You can you there, you have more freedom. There's a lot of things you can do. But over time, because the Roman Empire isn't the Church of God, the Church of God is a group of people called out to bring the good news to the world. The Roman Empire is a legal structure to create freedom for the Church that allows the Church to exist. And Jesus said there, it's two different kingdoms. The kingdom 
of Caesar, right? And he held up a coin. He goes, give to Caesar that which is Caesar, but give to God that which is God. So there's always been this tension between government and religion. And as long as there's a separation there, things go well. But when they grow together and the religion and the empire are one and the same, it gives way, 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 way too much power to the empire. And it, it destroyed Israel. It destroyed the Roman Empire. It destroys any empire where you create religion. And um, whenever you have religion and the government, the one and the same, it'll always destroy that. That's why our founding fathers created the separation. But it doesn't mean that they don't influence each other. It just means that they're separated, that you can have one without the other. Because once they're together, that's where the problem is. So in, in the United States today, um, we do have a separation of churches. I'm actually happy with the separation of church and state. And when the, when the state has the vast majority of people in the state that are Christian, it actually works pretty well. But when the vast majority of people in the state aren't Christian, then we, as a church, need to figure out, you know, instead of wishing that we could go back to the time when everybody was a Christian, um, we have to put that on hold and say, okay, everybody's not a Christian. Everybody doesn't go to church on Sunday morning. So how else do we do the stuff, you know, that God's called us to do to make our world, you know, to do discipleship in the world around us and the nation around us? And... Um, the church in the United States says, well, God's called us to make disciples, so we're just going to go to different countries, and we're going to do discipling in different countries. And I think that's a great thing, and it's a noble thing to do, but there is a whole harvest field here in our nation of people that need to be loved back to Jesus, and the church in the United States needs to figure that one out too. There are people in our little small community of Vail that need that crave, let me put it that way, they crave, they don't even know that they crave discipleship with Jesus Christ. How are we going to speak to them? How will we go out and meet their needs and talk to them and serve them and get them on a path of discipleship? That's really, and the methods that we've been using for the last hundred years, maybe even since the Protestant Reformation, they work well in a Christian nation, but I'm not sure they work well in the situation that we have today. So we have to rethink everything and relook at everything. Now, Paul, he would go into a nation, into a place and he would uh, create organization and structure, like I've said. And he was very organized, very structured. And in Ephesians 4, he even lists some of the positions that he has to create organization and structure. I just want to read this for you. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, or we might say discipleship, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul says here in Ephesians 4 is he's given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And these are some of the things that Paul identified as necessary to go into the world and bring the good news, evangelize to disciple people in the world around him. Remember, he's talking to Ephesus. This is in Asia. This is a church that he planted. This is a church that Paul went to. He stayed for a while. He put together organizational structure, probably of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And then he 
and then he left and then, you know, he expected them to, to do the things they're supposed to do. And then they had problems and he wrote back to them. But let's, I just want to spend the rest of our time together looking at each of these words because they're important. So the first word is this, apostello, which is where we get the word apostle, the Greek word apostello. It's to order, to go to a place appointed, to send away, to dismiss, to allow one to depart that he may be in a state of liberty, to order one to depart, send off, to drive away. So we get the sense, it's called the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he went out. He was an apostle. The early 12 followers of Jesus went out. Jesus gave them a commission, go and make disciples. So they had to go to become disciples. And so Paul started churches, and in those churches, in those communities, then he started discipling in those communities. So the church at some level has to go out and interact with the culture around them. It is not healthy for a church. It is extremely not healthy for a church to always be inward focused and say, all we're going to do is the people who are with us today, we're going to grow them in their faith. Because that does not follow the call of Jesus. Now, in a way it does, because it is enough if if you have a church and they say, our ministry is just to strong families. So we want the family to come to our church on Sunday morning and we're going to disciple them into the things of Jesus. And then they're going to go and disciple the families and we're going to create strong disciples. Uh, and that's pretty much been the Lutheran model for pretty much since the Protestant Reformation. Um, is that you have strong families, strong, large families, actually. And uh, this is the Roman Catholic model, too, right? You have strong, large families, and you catechize the family together with the head of the household, and they all catechize, and they grow. And then their children become, you know, their children pick up the faith, and their children pick up the faith, and it just works out well. Except over the last, I don't know, maybe 50 years, the model hasn't worked really well. The, the, the strong families, the strong Catholic families, the strong Lutheran families, the strong denominational families, there's so much influence of the world into those families. And the families don't know how to react to that. They don't know how to, how to respond to it. And so one way that a family might respond is to say, well, just don't listen to the world. You know, follow us. Stay in our enclave. This is almost the... Uh, the, well, what's the, the people, the Amish, right? I mean, they completely stay away from the world and they build their families strong and beautiful and all that sort of thing. Um, but if you're going to live in the world like Christ calls us, because the Amish, where the Amish fail is that they don't spread their good news to the world around them. They're just, they're staying isolated in their own enclave and they're not reaching out to people in the world about them. So, and Christ has called us. He says, go and make disciples. Go, leave your church, your congregation, you know, leave your building and go out into the world and actually make disciples into the world. And to me, the number one calling I feel for our church isn't necessarily in, you know, places around the world. It's in our community. It's, it's the people, the twelve to 15,000 people that live in this community they call Vale. And some of them are craving knowledge about the world around them that is on a spiritual level that we need to react to. So um, apostello, the apostle, is the one that goes out and just listens. Paul did this. He went into, um, he had this, he, he went on Mars Hill, uh, which is in Athens, I believe, and he he noticed that there was the tomb of the unknown God or, or something like that, and he goes, well, the 
And he reacted. I mean, people were were worshiping this unknown guy because the God that you don't know, I do know. And he reacted. He was very organic that way. He listened and he said, what is it that people are struggling with? And then he reacted and he created programs and structures and all that to listen to that. So that that's one level that Paul says exists. The other one is called the prophet. In the Greek, it's called the prophetess. In Greek writings, it's an interpreter of oracles or of other hidden things. One who, moved by the Spirit of God and hence his organ or spokesman, solemnly declares to men what he has received by inspiration, especially concerning future events, and in particular such as relate to the cause and kingdom of God and to human salvation. So this is, this has some debate in the church. You know, the prophets of old, and we have the Old Testament prophets, we have people that spoke the oracles of God. And even in the New Testament, you had these prophets. Um, I think in Acts 12, there was a prophet who, who spoke uh, the things of God. Um, a prophetess in the Old Testament foretold the kingdom of God, the deeds, the death, uh, foretold about Jesus the Messiah. Um, John the Baptist foretold about John the Baptist, the herald of Jesus the Messiah. It was men filled with the Spirit of God who by God's authority and commands in words of weight pleads the cause of God and urges salvation to men. They are prophets in the New Testament. They are associated with the apostles. They discern and did what is best for the Christian cause, foretelling certain future events. In the religious assemblies of the Christians, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak, having power to instruct, comfort, encourage, rebuke, convict, stimulate their hearers. So a prophet is one who knows the heart of God or listens for the heart of God. So the apostle goes and listens to the heart of the community, but the the prophet is the one that listens to the heart of God. And if you can match those up and marry those up somehow, then you have a program or procedure that gets God's heart into the community because you've listened to the community and you listen to God's heart and you bring those two together. Um, Angelion or Angelistus is an evangelist and an evangelist is just a bringer of good news. That's all it is. It was a Roman term that if there was an edict by one of the Caesars or something like that that was good news, that was an, an Angelist brought that good news to the community, to the Roman Empire. And what could be good news? Well, that maybe they won a war or maybe there was something that happened that was great or something like that. It was the, the heralder, the evangelist went and proclaimed that good news. Good news has already happened. It's called good news because it's already good news. So the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came and he rose again and he's redeeming the world. That's good news. All the pain and the hurt and the suffering that you're going through, don't worry about it because there's good news. Jesus is redeeming you. Let me tell you how he's redeeming you. That's the, that's the evangelist. A couple more. Uh, one is the, uh, the um, pastor or the shepherd. In the Greek word, that's called poimenos. It's a Latin word for shepherd, and we all know what a shepherd is. A shepherd just loves the sheep, cares for the sheep. You know, the sheep get into danger, and he goes and he grabs the sheep and brings them out of danger, that sort of thing. Um, and we've said many times in our congregation, you call me Pastor Hook, which I appreciate very much. But I can't be the only pastor in our congregation. I simply cannot be. So we have a great program called Stephen Ministry where people are pastoral towards other people. 
Um, you might be a pastor in your home to your children. You might be a pastor to your parents. Your parents might be a pastor to you. A pastor is really one that just loves people. And when people are going through hard times, trials, tribulations, the pastor walks beside them and helps them grow their faith because of the trial and tribulation. If you have no pastor in your life to help you grow in your faith, then it's quite possible your roots could die. So we need pastors, but it can't just be me. Um, and I'm, and I, I don't mean that because I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm a very loving pastoral person. I just can't do many people. Um, and so my, I'm, I think there are people, there are probably pastors out there that can pastor a large number of people very, very effectively. And God bless them very much. I'm so grateful for them because everybody needs a pastor. But I'm, I'm just not that, that's not a spiritual gift that God's given me. So I have to rely on other people to help me be pastoral to people in our congregation. But families in our congregation, uh, aunts, uncles, nephews in our congregation, um, grandparents in our congregation, friends of people in our congregation, work people in people in our congregation. Because if you're a pastor and you're in a business place, then you are then you have friends there that at some time in their night in their life may need pastoral help. And so when you come to church on Sunday morning and you learn something from Scripture, what that does is it goes in your memory bank. And then as you're living your life and you see a situation, it's like, oh, I remember a teaching on that. And then you can help people through that teaching. It's th These teachings on Sunday morning aren't just for you, although they are for you. But they're also supposed to go into your memory bank so that you can be pastoral towards other people. That's what that is all about. Um, and then the final one is a teacher, the didaskalos. A teacher, we all know this, is an instructor, one who provides instruction, implying authority over students. And uh, as I've said before, every Christian at some level is a teacher. Um, if they're just in the infancy of Christendom, they're young children, then no, they're not teaching just yet. But as the you know, as the root system grows and the poles come off and they go from being a student to living in this world, then at some level, they're also a teacher. They're teaching, if they're in high school, they're teaching their friends in high school the, the good news of God. If they then go to college, it's their friends in college. If they go to business place, it's their friends in the business place. If they have a family, it's their friends in the family. Um, if, and here's another place, if they end up serving in the church as a leader in the church, and they have people kind of underneath them doing a program or a ministry in the church and they're a leader of that program. They're, they're pastoral there too. As a matter of fact, that's their number one job is to be a pastor in those situations. So, um, uh, you know, t teacher. Their, their job is to be a teacher and in many instances, pastoral also. So anyway, I think we'll leave it there and we will pick up on this subject tomorrow. So why don't you join me in prayer? Gracious God, be with us and fill us with your spirit and help us to be good teachers, pastors, and as you've called us, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, so that we may be equipped to spread your good news to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.